podcast one production. Everywhere in the media, you see report after report about how robots and automation are going to drive us all out of our jobs, and that within 20 years, there won't be any task that a robot can't do better. It sounds very scary, which means it gets a lot of airplay. And it's clickbait for folks who worry about living in a precarious economy. But what if we've got it all wrong? I recently did a special episode about AlphaGo Zero, a computer program that taught itself how to become the best Go player in the world in 40 days. Now, was that us humans done for? No, because it turns out that the best Go players in the world are now partnering with AlphaGo, learning from it, and improving their own Go games. KG, who's the best human player, the one who got flattened last year by AlphaGo, he recently increased his own rating, becoming even better because of what he learned playing AlphaGo. So maybe, just maybe, there's more going on here. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. And on this series, we get to talk to some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this penultimate episode of Series 1, we talk to robotics legend Ken Goldberg about whether we need to be worried or relaxed and comfortable. The rise of the robots on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Back in 1995, when the web was just starting to take off, a weird little art project appeared on the internet. Via a web page, you could control a robotic arm. You could make it move here and there. You could snap a photo from whatever position you'd moved it to. But that wasn't all. Directly beneath this robotic arm sat a large round tub filled with soil. The robotic arm had various attachments so it could tend the soil. It could plant seeds. It could even water the plants that grew from those seeds. Now, the robot wouldn't do any of this by itself. People had to tell the robot what to do. And the amazing thing is that people did. Within the first year, 9,000 people had signed up to operate this telegarden, sharing the communal responsibility for this small patch of earth and raising a range of flowers. Now, the telegarden was never perfect. At one point, vandals got in and dug up a fair bit of the garden. But it showed how humans could work together with robots to create something unique and beautiful. The co-creator of the Telegarden is our guest on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Dr. Ken Goldberg is the chair of the Industrial Engineering and Operations Research Department at the University of California, Berkeley. Now, Ken has been teaching for a quarter of a century. And that means that he's not only seen a lot, it also means that many of the thousands of the folks who are working in this field, applying robots everywhere, those folks have been taught by Ken at some point in their lives. It's hard to overstate the esteem Ken's held in by his colleagues, but it extends far beyond that. A few months back, the Wall Street Journal invited Ken to write an op-ed about the robot-human alliance. That is, why our future isn't about competition and obsolescence but about partnership and cooperation. 
There's so many questions around this topic right now, and there are a few people better equipped to answer them than Ken Goldberg. I have been invited to his home today. Ken, welcome to the next billion seconds. Thank you, Mark. What a great introduction. So tell us all why we shouldn't be worried. What's going on here? I mean, we see the robots everywhere. We see them popping up everywhere. People are saying we're not going to be able to work, that every task is going to be taken over by a robot. You're saying, actually, nah, it's, it's, it's not really that at all. Well, listen, I never would say don't worry. I mean, it's always good to, to, to worry. But let's take your example of AlphaGo as a starting point. Yeah. So a lot of people are using that as the evidence that we are now surpassing human capabilities. We're able to, to beat the best human player in the world. Therefore, it's a, it's a short step before we're able to surpass humans in everything we do. Right. And that's the, this rhetoric around the singularity that I want to come back to because I think that's really, really a dangerous word and okay. concept. But if we take that game as an example, it, it is a game, first of all. So what you have is a board. And if you look at the board, you can represent it with ones and zeros. Right. It's perfect information. Now, it's still a hard problem because you have to decide what move you're going to make, where you're going to place your stone, and what the other person's going to do, and then you have a big branching factor. So computing the optimal place to put your stone is non-trivial. But there's a huge, huge difference between this environment and the physical world that we live in. Because here we have to deal, if you want a robot that's going to be able to drive a car or help senior citizens or work in factories or work in operating rooms, anything physical, it's completely different. You have very high dimensional, complex, what we call state spaces. Right, so there's lots of things you have to keep track of, lots of things that are going on at once. Exactly, and they're not binary, like ones and zeros. You actually have continuous, so everything is, is, is real valued. And everything is messy and sort of mixed up and dependent on everything else. Exactly, so it's, it's continuous, Things are time is flowing continuously, and noisy. Right. So we have a huge amount of uncertainty in every single dimension of this world. So you are living in a completely different environment. And humans are actually surprisingly good at navigating things that are noisy, things that are maybe not clear, things that are coming at them from several different directions at once. Absolutely. So the natural world, humans and animals and even plants, are actually very, very good at adapting to those kind of environments. But that's taken millions of years of evolution and in ways that we have no idea how these work in most cases. So the idea that we've made progress in this very narrow domain mm. is interesting, no doubt, and is, is somewhat of a breakthrough from a computer science perspective, but it has to be put into context that it's really not at all clear that how at all that's gonna translate into doing things in physical world. Okay, at the same time, over the arc of your career, right, because, I mean, you know, even just the time you take, not just teaching, but as a graduate school and, and doing research, which is 30 years now, right? You keep reminding me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. But we still have seen an enormous leap forward in not just our ability to build robots, but our ability to put them to work, yes? Yes and no. I think there have been, and I, as a roboticist, I mean, I'm, in some sense, I'm an advocate, right? I do believe that we're making progress, and I'm very excited about research, and I can tell you about the different aspects I'm interested in and excited about, but I think that it's also important to realize that if you look at something like just being able to clear a dinner table, yeah. In 1985, Hans Moravec observed that... Who was a very, very famous early robotics researcher. Right. He, he, he basically 
called, noted what he called the, the Moravex paradox, that uh, what is hard for humans, like precision spot welding, is very easy for robots. Right, but towel folding, which I know is one of the modern examples, if you try to build a robot to fold towels... It's very, very difficult. very hard. So that paradox is as true today as it was 30 years ago. We haven't made that much progress because, again, we're trying to deal with the physical world. So if, it's, if the physical world, we can control it, like in a factory assembly line, then, then robots are excellent. But as soon as you put a robot into a messy, complex environment, it becomes much, much more difficult. And this is, for instance, if you have a little robot vacuuming your home and, of course, spying on you, because we talked to Genevieve and I oh, talked right. about that in an earlier episode. But that robot then, if it encounters sort of surfaces that are too uneven or objects that are too big to vacuum up, it just fails. It can't really deal with things that are even modestly out of its range of what it's designed for. Right. So the, the, those vacuum cleaners are actually quite a success story. That, that has been very nice. It was a really, really interesting niche that turns out actually works well and people use them and, and they're, they're remarkably successful. I actually think it's related to another niche that we're going to see Right, this is a positive yeah. uh, view for robots. I am a believer that we are going to have, the next step is robots that can declutter a home. <laughs> yeah. So like those, that was that Japanese system of decluttering. Yeah, exactly. Marie Kondo, the right. joy of tidying up. Well, if you think about, like if you've seen the, the show Hoarders or, or if you look at my office right now, um, <laughs> you'll see, I mean, a lot of people, it's, 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 it's very common, right? This just clutter and, yeah. it's, and it causes, you know, kind of, it can be depression for a lot of people. It's just sort of a sign of people not, you know, not being organized or mm. not, not caring or not having the, the energy to, to pick up. But it's, it's a particular problem for anyone with kids, any, you know, but also senior citizens. Yeah. So if you're a senior citizen, first of all, it's hard to go around picking things up. You're not as agile. Second of all, your eyesight is not as clear, so you may miss something. And third of all, most importantly, if, you, if there's a, a bottle, uh, a pill bottle on the floor, and you slip on it, you could break your hip, yeah. and then you're in the hospital, and you're at, you know, you, it could be fatal. So having something that could go around and just keep the house relatively, the floors and maybe other surfaces, free of clutter, I think is very, very valuable. Is, have you seen people working on a decluttering robot? Oh, yeah. We're working on it. Oh, okay. Um, and actually, it turns out that there's a number of companies that are starting to put out these prototype systems. And one of them, for example, is Toyota. Right. Has, a, has, a, has, a, has a prototype. And it's interesting, Mark, because the, um, it has an arm and it's capable. It's actually very nice and precise. And the, there's still problems to work out. But I think we're within, uh, within probably five to ten years of a practical system that could basically rove around, basically like the Roomba, but taking it up to the level of being able to take things and put them into bins and keep the house relatively clean. And I think there's a real demand for this. Mm. So, but it is interesting because you, the difference between something that's just sort of sitting on the floor surface and something that's actually going around looking at things in, in, the, in the house, yeah. recognizing what they are, that they don't necessarily belong. Those are still all kind of in these tasks that we're just kind of starting to get okay it, Exactly, at, right? exactly. So one of the clues, and the big thing that's changed in robotics, I, I believe in the last five years, mm. is the cloud. Right. 
So, so the cloud, meaning meaning that, that a robot's intelligence isn't running just locally on the robot, but it's actually connected to everything that you can find, you can connect to online, which is things that will recognize objects for you, right. or how do I pick this up? Oh, someone's already figured that out, I'll pull that down from the cloud, things like this. Exactly, right. So we've always assumed that robots have to be self-contained. Right. And, and actually, in my field, it's amazing how much that, that assumption is still dominant. But we're starting to realize that they don't. You can actually do your computation remotely, download code and right. data on demand, and really importantly, robots can now start sharing. Right. data and experiences. Well, so Google's autonomous cars, mm -hmm. all right? And, and this is an interesting thing here, right? Google's designed all of its autonomous cars effectively to sort of share what they've learned about where the stop signs are, where there are bumps in the road, or, oh my God, that's a bad driver. Right, right, right. right. That they, they share all these things with one another. Exactly, so that's why Google has a huge advantage over other car companies, because they understand the cloud, mm. and Google is constantly using the cloud. So it's downloading information about traffic and weather patterns, but also, really importantly, as it approaches a new intersection, it's able to download the latest update about the policies to navigate that intersection. Right. So this is, this is changing all aspects of robotics. That in the home, as you're saying exactly right, recognizing objects is, is extremely difficult. Yeah. Constantly, we're bringing new things into our homes as well. So we have to be using judgment, and you don't want to put you know, the, the $10 bill into the garbage can. You want to be, you need to be able to not make those kind of mistakes. So you have- well, a clever robot slips that into a side right. pocket for later. <laughs> yeah. Right, so then there's, there's, a, um, there's a really set of interesting set of questions about how can the robot operate locally but make judgments and then when it needs to can access remote resources. Right. And then interestingly, what, what I'm excited about is the idea that robots can now Every time it tries to pick up a cup, if it succeeds, it's, it's a positive example. If it fails and the cup slips or drops, it will then upload that information as well. So this is again, and we've talked about machine learning models where really what you're doing is you're analyzing your mistakes in order to improve your performance. So you now have robots doing that with every action that they're making. Exactly, in parallel. So you have a collective learning process. Mm -hmm. And this links to the idea of deep learning. Mm -hmm. So deep learning is, very, is, is clearly a big step forward. And I, I don't want to uh, diminish that in any way. It's a really interesting class of algorithms, but it's not magic. No, 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 no. So Obviously, no, it's learning from your mistakes. Right, and it's, it's, it's basically, one of the things is that what, what many people don't realize is that what is different about this class, deep learning, from what we've been doing for the last 20 years is that there are many, many more parameters. Mm. I call it hyperparametric. Okay. And it's learning by adjusting these parameters, and the way that happens is because we have a lot more computation available. And a lot of this computation, by the way, is done in the cloud. Right. It's cloud and GPUs, which was the advance in graphics. Right. So these are the things, the ingredients that, that we're making significant advances. But we also have to put into context that even with all of that, having a robot be able to, let's say, learn to clear something even as, as sort of mundane as the dinner table yeah. is still, we're not there. <laughs> so we have, we have really useful, dedicated robots, but the more we try to make them general purpose, the more we encounter all of the weirdness. Now, let me, let me frame this for you. I recently, my, my uncle has bought himself a new Tesla. Ah, all right, okay. and I was, I was invited to take it out for a drive okay. with my 
cousin who drives it a lot. My uncle's a little older, only drives it a little bit. My, my cousin drives a lot. My cousin's an engineer. And so the two of us played with, because he spent a lot of time in the self-driving mode of the Tesla. Okay. And we were on surface streets doing this. And it was really interesting sort of watching the car have a think about what it wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And realizing it was making the wrong decision and then me pulling back on the wheel and it going, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I've Mm. got this wrong, and going back and forth. And you realized that a Tesla, although they talk about it being a self-driving car, is really good at driving on a highway Mm -hmm. because it's like the robot cleaning your floors. There's not a lot to think about, right? You stay away from the other cars, you stay in your lane, you're good. Mm -hmm. When you're on surface streets and do I take that turn, do I go up that driveway, all of a sudden you could tell that as smart as the car was, it was still like, I don't know, I'm just <laughs> gonna roll the dice and see what happens. Interesting, absolutely. So I am uh, pretty critical of the, of the expectations around self-driving cars. So you think they're not gonna come in the next five years? Not 10 years, I have a bet, I'm willing to take a bet that in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Right, which is where you're from. Right, and the fully autonomous vehicle, which is what Uber is claiming, right, that they're gonna have these, you know, no, no drivers at all, uh, that they're, I will say that in 10 years that will not be common in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and okay. I will bet on that. All right, so is that gonna be as true for, I mean, I can see that being true for passenger vehicles, but will we have delivery vehicles, so vehicles that are sized really differently, that don't need a human being, but that are autonomous enough to get a package across town or get your groceries home from the store? Well, will we have those in 10 years? Well, for the same reason, I, I'm worried because it's, as you said, the freeway is one thing, yeah. and the other area where I think we can make a huge amount of progress is in, 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 in heavy traffic. Bumper yeah. to bumper traffic, that's, that's where you want the autonomy. I want to take a nap when I'm stuck on the Bay Bridge. That's, I mean, that's coming very soon. But no, in being able to deliver across town, that's non-trivial, especially if the town has these small, small roads and, and there's, God forbid, there's kids on bikes and construction mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, any kind of weather. Right. So way, all of the messiness that the real world offers up. Exactly. So in those cases, here's one of the challenges is that um, the problem is that Tesla and many others are doing something very smart. They're, they're taking data from all their drivers. So Google, after five years of research, have collected something like a million miles of data. Uh, I believe it's true that, that Uber collects a million miles a day. <laughs> okay, Because <laughs> right? they're streaming it from every single car. Yep. Now that's really good, but the problem is that human drivers are, are too good they almost never sort of run off the road. And so you don't have any data for what do you do when you start to run off the road. So this is actually something my students and I are working on. We have a paper that's coming up in November. So you need more bad drivers. Well, or (laughs) actually our solution is is an algorithm called DART, which injects noise into the training. So essentially, if you wanted to train a car to drive well, you'd have a car where you drive it, but it would be constantly trying to push you off the road. And you would be steering it back on. Which is kind of how I was interacting with this Tesla. That's interesting. Well, that's interesting. So So to some degree, it may actually, I don't know if they're doing this uh, consciously, but it is an interesting strategy because if you can collect these borderline cases, you can move into the aspects of state space that are actually essential to, you need to get samples, you need data from those corners. Then you can, you can actually get something that's robust. So this really ties in, so I just interviewed Eric Zimmerman, he, he, the games pioneer, he's on the episode right before you, and he really talked about what he calls wiggle room. So it, where mm. you're at the edges, and you have this little room, and you're trying, and you're probing and playing, and this is where you learn. Mm-hmm. And you're saying exactly the same thing, that if you really wanna learn, if you want, really wanna teach a car how to drive or a machine how to learn, you have to get right into that rig- 
wiggle, wiggle room and really start to, 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 to probe it. Exactly, exactly, Mark. That's, that's exactly, I like that term because it's, it's exactly that idea that if you're just sitting in a comfortable middle of the road zone, mm. right, you're never, you're gonna learn how to do that very well. Yeah. That's not that hard, but when you, it's the corner cases, those yeah. things. And by the way, when humans- well, think about it, when humans are learning to drive, parallel parking. Right, which is like, oh my God, that's the thing that everyone just goes white as a sheet about. And in fact, it's one of the first things we taught cars how to do because mm-hmm. it's something, it's simple enough that a car can do it well and hard enough for a human to do it poorly. Well, here's a case, actually, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. That parallel parking is what I would call a subtask that I think we can nicely automate. Yeah. So the, the thing that's nice about it is you, everything is static. You right. can quickly measure where the curb, the cars are, and then it's geometry. And, and computers and robots are very good at that. Very so good. it can put that car right in there. And now that's, um, that's a beautiful case. And in fact, what we're doing with surgery is we're trying to automate subtasks. So here's an example is suturing. Suturing is, is just a little subtask that actually is all about geometry. And there's a haptic sense of it too, which, which is much harder. But that what you wanna do is you wanna very accurately place and get the angles right. So then you can actually have, you can speed healing, you can have smaller scar tissue, et cetera. And it's, so it's, there's a big value to being able to automate that. All right, we're talking to Ken Goldberg on the next billion seconds, we will be right back. And we're back talking to Dr. Ken Goldberg, internationally renowned robotics expert and deep thinker about all of these issues. All right, so Ken, we still are in a world where even if it's only by nibbles, a lot of tasks. And you know, the interesting thing about this is it's maybe not manual labor tasks, which do tend to be messy, but it might be a lawyer who's actually put out, or an accountant Mm -hmm. who's put out, secretaries are kind of already gone as a class, right? My mother spent her entire career as a secretary. It's almost a job description that doesn't exist anymore. Is that robots? Is that it's automation, certainly? And so are we going to continue or do robots accelerate that sort of death of a thousand cuts around certain classes of work just going away? So let's go back 100 years and compare the period we're in right now, which is the first 20 years of the 21st century, to the first 20 years of the 20th century. There's no comparison, right? We're living in such a far advanced, accelerated period of technological change. Um, But what did they have then? I mean, well, they had the automobile. There was the airplane, air conditioning, theory of relativity, and uh, the zipper. Okay, and we could go on. Thank I mean, goodness. Exactly. <laughs> so there is a huge range of technological advances that actually arguably had far more impact on our daily lives than, uh, than anything that we've really done in the last 20 years. Okay. So I'm not putting us down. We've done, we, there's a huge advances in, his, in technology right now. But what's important to remember is there have been advances all along. And we had disruption then. So at that time, there were many people put out of farms. Right. Uh, you don't see a lot of ice men or t- elevator operators. Right. Those did go away. But what happened was very interesting was that as they did, new, new jobs opened up. Right. And it's, it's hard to, to see exactly. It doesn't happen instantaneously. But it is the, the course of history. And economists understand this, that it, if you look back just consistently. Now, some will argue this time is different. And, and whenever someone says that you have to be, you know, have to raise your eyebrows, right? So, well, like they say, but every stock market bubble, oh, this time is exactly, different. Exactly, exactly. 
Right, so that's, uh, that's a clue, by the way. Whenever someone says that, it's like, get your skepticism up because um, you prove it because there will be disruptions, no doubt. Right. And you're right. One of the things I think will happen is in, for example, stockbrokers. Right. But it's really because what we're doing is the way we manage money is different. And it's not so much that the robots necessarily, but it's that people are starting to realize that index funds are just as good as stock pickers. Right. The many cases, though, in so many of these operations where anything manual... So anything that you have to do with your hands, construction, plumbers, and I would include drivers, by the way. I think yeah. we're going to have many, many jobs for drivers. And in fact, maybe more, because as e-commerce starts to, to, to kick into full gear, we actually need to manage all this flow of products. So I'm optimistic that- So kind of like the way we have air traffic controllers for our planes, we may in fact need ground control is for all of this delivery that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, air travel, for example, created so many more jobs, right? It created the whole tourism industry took off in a whole new way, right? So there's new things that are going to happen. Demand for products is going to change because if, if Amazon is right, and I think they are, we are going to change the way we shop very dramatically. I mean, it's already starting to happen, right? When you think of something, you order it. It's, it's amazing. There was before a lot of friction, right? You had to wait till you got to the store and maybe they didn't have it. And... Now you, you imagine almost anything, and two clicks away or one click, it's there, and then it's there. I know, I'm calling that surveillance utopianism. Okay, <laughs> all right, all right. Well, yeah, I mean, it, whether it's good or not is a different question. Yeah, exactly. But it's, I do think that's- But it's a thing. It's a thing, and it's gonna create um, lots and lots of, uh, of, uh, of jobs. At the same time, there's other things we can't even imagine. So that's the other thing, is that if you ask somebody in 1900 what we're gonna, all these new jobs are gonna be, they couldn't, they couldn't predict them. So another thing I'm, I wanna put into context is people worry about robots. The headlines, as you said, are the robots are stealing all the jobs. And I have to say, this Oxford study really bothers me because it claims 50%. And if you look at the data, it's hugely flawed. What percentage of jobs now are done by robots today? So you might, some people say 15, 20, 30%. I wouldn't think it was anywhere near that high. It's under 1% yeah. of robots in industry versus workers. It's under 1%. It's very, very small. And it's not as though it's suddenly about to change radically. Mm. There's some advances, but one of the things that's important to keep in mind, I think, is that the fear around this it echoes a lot of the fears around immigration. Mm. So back 100 years ago, it was a fear of Chinese yeah. coming in. Then it was the Italians, yeah. then it was the Irish, and then it was the Jews. And so we have... And now, the, it's, now it's the, the Latin Americans. La, and, yes, the Mexicans. So, and exactly. And yeah. now it's robots. So robots fits a pattern of a, we want a scapegoat. And somehow there's something. Now robots, this was uh, put by uh, Oliver Morton in The Economist, said robots are immigrants from the future. Ah, that's beautifully put. Yeah, and, right. and that, that's, so I think there's something really important to understand this, psychology. And as, you're, as you were alluding to earlier, I'm very interested in the idea of robots as metaphorical. Mm. Robots are really something that are very, very reflective of ourselves. Every time we start talking about robots, yeah. we're talking about ourselves. Well, I mean, the entire word and the, the capic play and, and all of that. Is, I mean, the word robot comes from a play that was written in 1922 in Prague. Rossum's Universal Robots. Rossum's Universal Robots. And in that first play, they got into this whole idea of competition and what is a person for? And, and do robots have souls? I mean, all of that is in the original version of where the word robot comes from, which is from a piece of basically science fiction. Right. Right. And so, yes, robots have always been visitors from the future and they've always posed these questions to us about 
what are we good at? I mean, my own feeling is that the tasks that robots do well, we should let them do well so that we can focus on the tasks that we do well. And there's always going to be, I think, enough space in there, enough wiggle room between those two for us to go on. But, you know, can we say, I mean, if someone has a child, you have two children who are still, still in school, right? And if you take a look at the end of their career, which is going to be about 50 or 60 years from now, right, which is 2 billion seconds from now, have we used up all of that wiggle room? Not at all. No, we have many good years left. And it's the example, you, the example you started with about the AlphaGo players getting much and much better. We're seeing exactly the same thing. So when I watch how kids are being educated today, we're starting to use the computer as a grindstone, as you put it. Something that, we can, that, that helps accelerate their ability to learn, their ability to find new information, and they're getting smarter as a result. Mm -hmm. They're able to, to have adaptive testing. They're able to, and, and I think this is, we're only at the beginning of this, but it's, it is going to accelerate our own capabilities. And, and you're right, one thing that all these machines do is they help us understand what it is to be human. What, is, what are our unique characteristics yeah. and capabilities? And that's actually very, very helpful, ultimately. Well, I think 100 years ago, when 90% of all labor was farm labor, and then it was replaced by combine harvesters and things like this, right? No one really thought, oh, well, you know, I've lost my value as someone who's harvesting corn because a machine can come on and do it 100 times more efficiently. And therefore, I've, I've lost my, my ways on debt that I don't have a reason to be anymore. And I think when we look at this going, oh, well, you know, I've lost my job on the factory floor, or I've even lost my job as a lawyer because there's a computer program that can search all of blah, blah, blah very quickly, that that then devalues me as a person. But maybe over the last hundred years, we've also so oriented ourselves around what our career definitions are, that maybe that's what we're reacting to. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up. So the farm story is very interesting because in the United States, there was something called the high school movement. So in 1910, only 10% of Americans graduated high school. They didn't need to for the whole on the whole because there was all this farm work. But what happened was, as they started to see automation move in, a group of educators, mostly from farm states, started to decide that they wanted to redefine education and have students stay in through high school and learn a number of new skills that would enable them to take on jobs that were often moved into cities and other environments off the farm. So suit them for the industrial economy that was happening. Exactly. So what they did was they, they invented new curriculum. They started rethinking the way we think about high school so that you actually, it's something you, you expect to complete. And they started building high schools all over the country. So if you, if you go around, the local high school here was built in 1908. So it's in that period, it's Absolutely. that whole thing. And what's interesting, by 1950, the number of Americans graduating from high school was 80%. From 10%? From 10 to 80%. Okay, so that happened basically over the course of about 50 years. Right. Amazing transformation. All right, so let's frame this now differently. How do we need to think about educating our kids today for the fact that they're going to be in a world of robots? Because I think if, if we are in, a, in an analogous transition, then maybe some of the analogous techniques are useful. So how do we think about that? Okay, great. So that's exactly right. So let's come back to this word singularity. All right. 
because I, it, 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 so what does it mean? You know, the okay. my, my listeners have not even they may have heard it elsewhere. They have not heard it used previously in this podcast. So what does that word mean? All right, singularity is a hypothetical transition point right. in time when suddenly AI and robots become so capable that they start training themselves mm -hmm. and rapidly surpass human capabilities. Okay, but I mean, you can take a look at AlphaGo Zero did train itself to become a really good, so does that mean that this has already happened or what's the difference between that and this thing you're talking about? Well, this what singularity is where it happens in general intelligence, right? So you're solving all the problems, including all the weird hard stuff that we've been talking about exactly. that's just really hard. Okay. Exactly, and humans become essentially obsolete at that point. This, is, uh, this, is, this was in a lot of science fiction stories. Ray Kurzweil wrote a book called The Singularity is Near, mm. where he basically predicts that it's, it's around the corner okay. and we're getting closer and closer. This is extremely false and almost everyone working in, in the field of, of computer science agrees this is hugely exaggerated and it's very counterproductive. It's creating a huge amount of fear because people who in, in, in all walks of life hear this. Because, I mean, this is, I think people probably say, oh, this is Skynet, right? Like right exactly. They, you get this general artificial intelligence and then, it, and then it fires the missiles and that's us done for. Right, right. So this is actually, the mythology goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, Prometheus, mm. Pygmalion, up through the Golem and Frankenstein and, and right up through Skynet and, and Ex Machina. I mean, these are the, the tropes of, of science fiction mm -hmm. and they're, they're, they're endlessly fascinating for reasons we can come back to, which has to do with why our obsession uh, psychologically with ourselves, ultimately. But the, it's, it's, it's also very detached from reality. Okay. So what I want to posit as a, as a response to, to singularity right. is an alternative right. that I call multiplicity. Mm -hmm. Multiplicity is not some monolithic AI that's going to take over, but it's actually about the idea that more capable machines, computers, and artificial intelligence systems can be combined with intelligence augmentation mm -hmm. to enhance human capabilities, in particular to, to increase diversity mm -hmm. and collective thinking and decision making. So, I mean, if you take a look at how humans in just the last decade have taken up smartphones, which end up being the vehicles for this collective thinking and collective knowledge sharing. And, you know, if you have a question, you go to Google or you go to Wikipedia or you go to Siri or wherever, right? Are we already then, I guess, a fair way along that path? Yes, yes. And so you just named the, the two best examples I, I know of, which is one is, is, is Wikipedia, mm. is a beautiful example of collective intelligence. It has checks and balances. It's not perfect, but it really does. No, it's messy. And, and yeah. error, it's all of the things that qualify as being human, right? It's yes. messy in all of those ways. Right. And yet at the same time, it's comprehensive. It has lots of fascinating elements to it. Google search is the other example, mm. and many people would, would uh, not recognize that as artificial intelligence, but absolutely is. Yeah. So if you can type a word and immediately find the websites that are, that are relevant to that, that's, that is artificial intelligence by any measure. What's interesting is the way it's done, the way it's achieved. It's because we are using, Google is using many different algorithms, right. combined many different algorithms, lots of human data right. in the forms of the web link structures, but also, interestingly, every time it presents results, you get a page of options. You click right. and you tell Google. You what's, it, what's important to you. Yes, and that feedback is essential right central stream of information. If you took that away, Google's search engine would quickly deteriorate. Right, so, so this is the thing. So Google isn't really just 
Google running in the cloud, Google needs us. Absolutely. Because if it didn't, it wouldn't be getting better at what it's doing. Exactly. And that's so important to realize that it's a symbiosis, that we are constantly and collectively right. providing this input. And the same is true for Amazon to recommend products, for Facebook to recommend news, for all these different services are constantly using our human input. So one other piece I want to mention yeah. is that in one of the ideas underlying multiplicity comes from a, from the field of machine learning, yeah. which is in machine learning, there's, there's a fundamental technique called a decision tree. So what you do is you have data, mm -hmm. you, you observe data, and you basically classify it, and you train a tree, the weights on a tree, to be able to classify new data. So a tree is sort of, you know, you have branching paths. Like you can take the path to the left or the path to the right. Exactly. Based on your data, you might, make, you might go left, you might go right, you come down a little further, you have more data, you go, do I go left or right? And that traces out something that looks like a tree. Exactly. Good. So that is a tree, and decision trees are very effective for classifying data. It turns out that about 20 years ago, researchers at Berkeley came up with an alternative they called the random forest. And a random forest is not just one decision tree, but a collection of decision trees. So how can you, I mean, if you have the same data, are, do you, do you, you're making different trees out of the same data? Exactly, exactly. So you have to perturb the trees. You have to basically do some randomizing right. so that they don't all grow the same way. Right. Because that turns out to be the essential part. So this is the wiggle room again, right? You're sort of wiggling things a little bit to get a slightly different tree over here than you have over there. Right, because then when you combine the results, you get something that's much more robust. Mm -hmm. And if you have homogeneous trees, if all the trees are too similar, right. you don't get the robustness, you don't get, you the, get the same tree. answer out of every tree. Right. So you want slightly different answers, and it turns out that you can provably show that you get better results. But don't you get, I mean, if you, don't you get them, you get multiple answers, you get a multiplicity of answers, so how do you know which one is the, the good answer or the right answer? Basically, it's a form of voting. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's weighted, Show your hands. It's weighted voting, because so, <laughs> yeah. each one has confidences. But there's a number of techniques out there. How do you combine those? Right. You're asking the right question. But it turns out that you get all those answers, you, you, you let them each process, and then you combine them. Right. And that is, the, the insight there, for me at least, is that that means that diversity is essential to good decision-making, good, good processing. And how does Wikipedia work? People work on an article, people go, well, that fact's right, that fact's wrong, they go back and forth. You know, I mean, it's everyone bringing their own decision tree in their head to it, and, and, and from that you can actually build a good enough Wikipedia. So what we're doing is, in some sense, we're teaching the robots in those systems things that we already do by ourselves. Well, right, and actually it's, it's something that there's been studies in, in human group psychology that have been over decades now that show that humans in groups perform better when they're diverse. Yes. So if you're trying to either estimate the value of a commodity or solve a problem, that if you have a very homogeneous group and you just take the highest average IQ group, they will not do as well as a group that is diverse. And this is fascinating. And why is it? Because you have, you have an echo chamber. If everybody's extremely you know, high IQ, they've all had similar experiences, probably pretty nerdy. They don't know. They're, they're oblivious to certain things and they're in an echo chamber. What you want is diversity. You want that person at a left field. Right. We want the person who's driven off the road because yes. they have the experience of having driven off the road and they will tell you how to make sure the car doesn't drive off the road. Right, right. Or they'll come up with a brilliant idea that here's a shortcut that actually will get us here faster. So that's exactly right. So I think that what AI, this is where I'm hopeful and what, what I'm hoping to, that multiplicity can illustrate is that AI actually can help us understand the value of diversity, mm -hmm. human diversity. and. And, and by the way, it's also related to intelligence. And the way we've defined intelligence today is this one-dimensional axis. How well you can solve a 
kind of problem. Well, yeah, the IQ, and this, by the way, I, I kind of blame Stanford for this because that's where a lot of this work was done, but it was trying to boil everything down to this one scalar number. Mm. What is interesting is that actually everyone knows that intelligence is really very multidimensional. So many people have different skills, yes. and that's what's extremely valuable. We do a great disservice by boiling us all down to one, projecting it down to one dimension. If you start to understand that what, what I like to call neurodiversity, that uh, you can start to see that what you really want in, a, in, a, in an organization, in a group, is a, is a mix. You want the diversity of ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. And then it opens the door to artificial intelligence just being another dimension of intelligence. Okay, but then does, does this mean if we are really trying to get to the, to the robot that's going to clean the kitchen table, right? That, in fact, maybe what we need, if not in reality, at least in the software, is a bunch of different robots that are arguing about the right way to clean the table or whether that's actually a glass and whether that plate needs to go into the dishwasher. And so is that the kind of diversity? And maybe if humans going to chime in, like, no, that's not. That, that's dirty. Put that in the dishwasher. Are we going to need to be able to do all of that if we're going to have a robot to clean the table? All right. So let's come back to part of the thing is that it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't be a crowded room with a bunch of robots bumping into each other. But picture it as each robot is in its own home in right. separate places and they're collectively sharing information maybe late at night right. about what's worked what didn't right so then you're dude i got into so much trouble today exactly. with, with the glasses <laughs> right let's separate those two things because i think that having robots to be able to do some of these mundane jobs yeah. like keeping the floor clear from clutter is extremely valuable i want that because i don't want to have to think about that and there's other similar jobs like that that are just doing the same thing over and over again. And I understand, and by the way, I'm very sensitive to the issues of inequality mm. um, and injustice today is huge. And I'm not trying to minimize at all the kind of suffering that's going on yeah. in this world. But I do think that what is, what, where the opportunity is that we can start, rather than looking at AI as something that's going to oppress us and surpass us, is trying to see where can it illuminate our opportunities mm. to, to think in new ways. So an amplifier rather than a moderator, right? Something that amplifies rather than suppresses. Absolutely, exactly. So it, that is where I think that, that multiplicity is so much more positive and inclusive than, than singularity. And it, it really echoes Deleuze and Guattari and uh, other philosophers from Bergson going all the way back to, to Plato, which is that there's, a, there's an advantage to, to thinking with different viewpoints and perspectives. It's not a monoculture, and this kind of Western canon idea is, is not effective. What we really need to do is start admitting all of the different ways of thinking. Ken Goldberg, this has been an amazing, illuminating, fun conversation. Thank you for being the final guest this year on The Next Billion Seconds. Thank you, Mark. Awesome. And on the final episode, of series one of the next billion seconds. We have something really special planned. We're going to have a big in-studio conversation with three guests from series one. John Alsop, who's been with us twice, Andy Pillane, who was with us on episode two, and Genevieve Bell, who was with us on episode four. All of them have a lot of observations to make about the world we're in and the world we seem to be heading into. They've been listening to this series, and they're going to respond to some of the things that folks have been saying in this series, and they have some thoughts they'd like to add on their own. In addition, I'm going to throw in a couple of curveballs. There's a new video for something called a slaughterbot, which is maybe going to change the way we start to think about the future. That's the next time on the season finale of the next billion seconds. 
The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Audiogram by D. Hoala. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.